you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 3. We come this morning to the third chapter of 1 Peter in our regular exposition of the book of 1 Peter, a series that we have titled Living as Exiles. And we come this morning now to the first part of a section that has to do with Peter's instructions to wives and husbands. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, please make us into lovers of the Bible. Help us, convince us of the sufficiency of your word. Bring us to bow before its authority and excite us and move us by its power to do what it calls us to, to the glory of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray together in his name, amen. Amen. As Christians, we are Bible people, and as a Christian church, we preach Bible sermons. We do this ordinarily by preaching through books of the Bible. We don't select the topics, God does. All we do is turn to the next text. The next text this morning brings us to a passage that in the eyes of the world today appears passe, offensive, and even to some, oppressive. It is none of those things. Our passage today provides a word to women that represents the will of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise, all-good, and perfect God. And sisters, my aim today is to help you not only to see and understand what the Bible teaches, but to love what the Bible teaches, even in a passage that may appear at first glance to contain some challenging truths. We're talking this morning about submission of wives to husbands and about true beauty as God defines it. It's important, sisters, that you understand uh, that this passage doesn't represent everything the Bible teaches, uh, either about marriage or about submission in marriage or about biblical womanhood. So my aim this morning is not to give a comprehensive presentation of these subjects. I am preaching these verses, these six verses in 1 Peter chapter 3. So it's very likely that some questions will remain. So come, set up an appointment, and we'll talk about them. Feel free to reach out, and we'll engage those questions. Uh, I know in my small group this week, which by the way, uh, my particular small group, we have room for some more. If you're not in a small group, want to be in one. Our small group this week will be discussing this text in particular, and we'll try to walk this out a little bit more 
in our small group setting. Uh, but I just can't take up everything on this sermon. I want to do my best to faithfully preach these verses as Peter presents them in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Uh, remember that Peter's words here are in line with a larger section in the book of 1 Peter that begins, if you recall, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I want you to look at those verses. So if you look back at 1 Peter 2, he introduces a new section in verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beginning in verses 11 and 12, Peter shifts his concern now to the public conduct of the people of God and how they live in a hostile world and how they live and represent Jesus and his kingdom as sojourners and exiles. And, and what Peter does is he then analyzes how this works itself out in varying relationships in the world. So immediately after he gives this statement, he considers how Christians ought to relate to the governing authorities that they're to submit and be subject to the governing authorities. And, and then he goes on to consider the relationship of slaves to masters and how slaves are to respond in that particular relationship. Now he moves to consider how wives and husbands are to behave in their conduct toward one another before a watching world in that particular relationship. And then from there, he'll go on to consider how we deal with persecution in the wider world. But you need to see this as part of a larger section that Peter is presenting. So who were the wives in this passage? These women that Peter has in view, I think, were probably women who had been converted as the gospel went throughout Asia Minor. And I think the assumption of the passage, I'm not 100% sure, I think the assumption of our passage this morning is that many of their husbands were not converted. And Peter is addressing these sisters who are Christians, followers of Christ, but are married to men who are not believers. That would be one of the most difficult callings, I think, in the world at that time. I think it's one of the most difficult callings in the world today, to be married to a husband who is not a Christian. And these women were in that kind of a situation, and Peter wants to help them and fortify them and instruct them in how they're to live in that particular relationship. So these sisters were sojourning women. They were women living in exile in a hostile world. They were women who were seeking to please God in the very difficult relationship that they were called to as Christians married to unbelieving husbands. It's likely that their husbands uh, were negative about their attachment to the Christian faith. It's likely that their husbands tried to force them to worship the gods of their husbands. It's a very difficult relationship these women would have been in. So let me say, before we dive into our exposition of the passage, you may be here this morning and you're not a wife married to an unconverted husband, or you may not be a wife at all, uh, but though that may be the case, there is something in this passage for every woman and girl here in this room. This passage has implications for every woman, every girl here this morning. And if you're here and you're a man, don't think you can check out. We're going to talk about husbands next week, but don't think you could check out this week. There is something here for every man as well particularly for those who are either married or wish to be married one day. Brothers, this passage tells you what you should prize in a woman. This passage describes for you something of the Christian vision for a godly and beautiful woman that you want to help your wife achieve. You want to help her live out that vision. And as you hear that vision laid out this morning, 
uh, hopefully you can stir your wives to pursue this vision that's laid out in this passage. But further, I'll just say this. These women in this passage, if they really did do the things that God, through the apostle Peter, was calling them to do, they would have been extraordinary examples of faith and of hope and of love and living for the approval and the pleasure of God over the approval and pleasure of this world. Women who live like this are examples not only to other women, but to all the saints who want to live first and foremost for the approval of God. So this week, I want to talk about the beautiful wife. Next week, we'll talk about the humble husband in verse 7. So here's the outline for our consideration of verses 1 through 6 this morning. We'll consider, first of all, the submission required. Secondly, the purpose given. Thirdly, the conduct endorsed. And fourthly, the beauty commended. The submission required, the purpose given, the conduct endorsed, the beauty commended. Consider with me first the submission required, and we'll spend more time on this heading than any of the other headings. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And before actually trying to define the nature and character of what biblical submission is in a marriage relationship, let me just make a few general observations, okay? First of all, as I've already noted, the submission required here is part of a general program of doing good that Peter is commending to Christian exiles. We get that with that word, likewise. So Peter has already addressed how Christians should live in relation to the government, how Christians who find themselves in a slave relationship, and that would have been many people, within the life of the churches there in Asia Minor, how they're to respond to masters. Likewise, here's instructions in the same sort of spirit, with the same sort of doctrinal grounding, likewise, wives should be subject to their own husbands. A second observation. The submission required here, this is so important, the submission required here is voluntary. It's voluntary. Now, by that, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean optional. So if I said, we use that word voluntary kind of to mean optional sometimes, if I said, um, uh, we're going to have a sign-up for folks who want to come and spread mulch on uh, the playground outside, Uh, don't feel like you need to come, it's just voluntary. What would I be saying? It's optional whether or not you sign up. You don't have to sign up. That's not what I mean when I use the word here when I say that this submission required is voluntary. What I mean is that women aren't to be coerced into submission. Rather, out of a desire to please God in conjunction with their own wills, they are to submit themselves. We see that in the tense of the verb that's given, be subject to or submit to. It's, this means something to you, a present passive participle. It is wives of their own volition, their own will, purposing in obedience to God that they are going to submit themselves to their husband. No one is by force or coercion compelling them into submission. A third observation, wives are called here to submit to their own husbands, not to men generally. The idea that women are called to submit to all men generally is nowhere found in the Bible. The idea that women are to be deferential to all men or to submit to all men or that they owe some kind of special honor to all men generally is not supportable by Bible texts, by the words that God Himself has said. No man has headship or authority over all women simply by virtue 
of the fact that he is a man. That would represent a perversion and a distortion of this text. The call to submission upon a wife is that she submit to her own husband. A fourth and final general observation. Now with respect to the husband's mention in the latter part of verse 1. I think this passage, as I said, is probably envisioning unbelieving husbands. These husbands who, as Peter says, do not obey the word. The reason I think that's a reference to unbelieving husbands is that two other times in 1 Peter, he refers to not obeying to, uh, something. So Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 17 refers to those who do not obey the truth. Clearly he has in mind those who do not know the Lord. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 22, he refers to those who do not obey the gospel. Again, envisioning those who don't know the Lord, who haven't been born again. So I take this to mean here, in this reference of not obeying the word, it's a similar idea. Furthermore, uh, the language in our passage, the, the wife is trying to win her husband. When that language of winning someone is used, it's most often used in seeking to win them to Christ in a, in a saving way. That said, though I think we're to envision primarily unbelieving husbands, I do think this text has relevance to wives married to Christian husbands who for some reason or another are disappointing spiritually. They're immature spiritually. There are aspects of their lives they've not brought in conformity and obedience to the Word of God. Maybe they're believers, but they're just not acting like it in very significant ways. So in that sense, um, with wives, all of you who are wives, you're married to imperfect men, I think there is a platform set forth in this passage for all of you in the ways you would seek to win your husband to Christ-likeness and to obedience to the Lord. But I think the main focus that Peter gives us is on wives married to unbelieving husbands. Now, with those general observations behind us, let's talk about the submission required. I preached, I guess it would have been two and a half, three years ago, on the subject of wives submitting to their husbands in our series on Ephesians, when we came to Ephesians chapter 5. There, the Apostle Paul calls on wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. You can find that sermon on our website. And in that sermon, I took pains to list a handful of things that submission is not. And a number of women came to me afterwards and said they found that helpful, so I'm going to represent that here as we seek to define what submission is. So first of all, what biblical submission is not. I have five things here. And I think you'll see actually all of these in our passage this morning. You can discern them from the text itself. Number one, submission does not require, sisters, that you submit to wickedness. Submission, biblical submission, does not require that you submit to wickedness. Clearly, Peter expects that these Christian women were to value the approval of God more than the approval of their husbands. And I derive from that this principle that, wives, you are not to submit to wickedness. If your husband says to you, I want you to get drunk with me, you know, let's, have, let's have this together. If he wants you to submit to group sex, if he wants you to be involved in some form of abuse or something like that, out of obedience to Christ, as his will comes into conflict with the will of the Lord Jesus, uh, you don't submit to that kind of wickedness. And I just want to say on this point, as the problem of domestic abuse has reached epidemic proportions in our own country, uh, if you are a woman enduring some kind of abuse, it is your prerogative and your freedom to notify the authorities. You are not called to submit to a crime. And you can come to your pastors who would deal with the issue of abuse in the context of the ecclesial realm, in the realm of the church's discipline. God does not call women to submit 
to abuse. And I'll just say to any husbands here who to any degree have been involved in that kind of behavior, you will not find a sympathetic ear in the pastors of this church if you seek to employ a passage like this to justify abusive behavior towards your wife. This church will not be a safe haven for such men. Sisters, you are not called of God to submit to wickedness. Secondly, submission does not require that you agree with your husband at all points. And aren't you glad? Uh, submission doesn't require total agreement with your husband so that you agree with your husband at all point. That is clearly not envisioned in this passage, right? Uh, this wife would have the most severe and extreme disagreements with her husband. She follows Jesus of Nazareth. She's given her life to him. He hasn't done that. They see the world and their lives completely differently. They don't agree on the most fundamental and important issues in the world. So, sister, submission does not require you must agree with your husband at all points. Thirdly, submission does not mean you can't try to persuade your husband to think differently than he does. Again, you can see this in this passage. The whole passage is a roadmap for how to persuade your husband to think differently. Uh, so, so, so the goal, what Peter is holding out to these sisters, is an approach whereby you might win your husband to greater and more faithful obedience to God and his word. It's not wrong to want to persuade your husbands, of course respectfully so, to conformity to God's word and to obedience to his word. Fourthly, submission does not require, does not require spiritual dependence on your husband. Submission does not require spiritual dependence on your husband. This passage clearly assumes that these women can't depend upon their husbands spiritually. The husbands in this passage were not at all spiritually supportive of their wives, and yet she's expected to maintain a godly and virtuous life independent of her husband and also, of course, in relationship to her husband. So, sisters, I just want to say this. Just because your husband may not be what he ought to be spiritually does not mean you can't be what you ought to be spiritually. Pray for your husband. Support your husband. Encourage him to be what he ought to be spiritually. But if he is not, it does not mean that you can't live a full and God-honoring life in spiritual devotion to the Lord Jesus. Surely these wives had no spiritual support from their husbands. If you find yourself in that situation, you can still live a full, live a full and godly life. Number five, last one. Submission does not require that the wife be less competent than her husband or less spiritually mature than her husband in order to submit to him. This passage does not require that the wife be less competent than her husband or less spiritually mature than her husband in order to submit to him. So these wives are expected to submit to their husbands, but clearly the wife is at least considered to be more spiritually mature than her husband, and probably very likely she was more competent than him in all kinds of ways. But listen to me, the idea that a wife need not submit to a man who is less competent or less spiritually mature than her is an idea foreign to the Bible. The idea that unless your husband has superior competence or is superior in spiritual maturity, you don't have to submit to him. It's an abiblical or an unbiblical idea. Similarly, the idea that a man needs to be more competent than his wife or more spiritually mature than her in order to lead her is a fiction. 
Brothers, you don't have to be more competent than your wife in order to lead her in the way the Bible calls you to lead her. You don't even need to be more spiritually mature than her to lead her in the ways that God would call you to lead her. Superior competence and spiritual maturity are not prerequisites for godly leadership of a wife, but that's getting into next week's sermon for husbands. That's what submission is not. There's more that could be said. That's five things. Now let me try to positively define biblical submission of a wife to her husband. The verb that's used here is the verb that we translate submit to or be subject to. The idea is to be subordinate to someone else in terms of rank, not in terms of dignity, but in terms of rank. It is the same word used in Ephesians 5 to describe the submission required of wives to their husbands. So here's a working definition. It's an imperfect definition, but it's a working definition that I've slightly adapted from a very popular definition given by John Piper, the pastor theologian. Here's the working definition of biblical submission of a wife to her husband. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor, affirm, promote, and respond to the leadership of her husband and to help carry it through according to her gifts. Let me give that again. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor, affirm, promote, and respond to the leadership of her husband and to help carry it through according to her gifts. The goal of the wife in her submission is to make her husband successful in his leadership of the family. He is not to be seen as her rival. His leadership is not something to be undermined or diminished. It is to be embraced, celebrated, promoted, affirmed. And the wife is to think to herself, how can I help to make him successful in his leadership of me and our family? How can I support and uphold his leadership? How can I do this as unto the Lord? Listen, that could be challenging for any women, any, any woman, excuse me. It would have been particularly challenging for these women Their husbands were evidently not what they ought to have been. They were not spiritually mature men. They were likely not even Christian men. And yet, submission is still required of these women as a matter of God's calling on their lives. That's the basic thing required, the submission required. Consider with me, secondly, the purpose given. What is the purpose Peter gives for why these wives in this difficult situation should submit to their husbands? Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Sisters, the point is to win them. Very simply, it's to win them so that they might be won. That's the goal of these wives, to win her husband to obedience to the word. And the particular tool or means at her disposal for winning her husband, at least the one that is highlighted here, is her godly conduct, her respectful and pure conduct. Peter is saying, wives, you can win your husband without a word. You don't have to win him with arguments, with berating him with words. You can win him, perhaps, by your respectful and pure conduct. What is emphasized in these verses is the apologetic power 
and the evangelistic appeal of godly conduct. Now, this is not to say you can't win your husband without a word, or excuse me, with a word. The hope is that he would be one with a word, but suppose he's not won by your words. I think that's the idea here. I think that words have been shared. It's not like she never made an appeal to her husband to turn from his sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like she never invited him to come to church with her. It's not like he ever made it, she, ever, she never made an effort to read the Bible with her husband. But the idea, I think, is that words have been spoken. They've not had the effect she has hoped that her words would have through his hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness. But the question then is, do you, sister, after you've given those words, do you have any more resources at your disposal with which to win him? And I think the answer is yes. Yes, you do. You have also your godly conduct that lends credence to the word that has been spoken, your godly behavior which adorns the gospel to which you hope to win your husband. That's not to say words are no longer in play. No one is one to Christ apart from words. We've talked about that already in this series of sermons. But I think this is the idea in our passage. After the words have been spoken, what, what can you now do? Is, is it your, your calling now just to keep bringing words, to try to nag him into heart change? No one is changed at the heart level by nagging and by berating. Do you have anything else? How else might you win your husband? Well, when words fail, sisters, you have your godly conduct. You have your pure and respectable behavior. You have your virtue with which you can adorn the gospel message, and who knows, but that like a golden thread, God might bless it to draw your husband to saving faith and to conformity to the word of God when they see your pure and respectful behavior. So the submission required, now that's the purpose given to win your husband's sisters. Now thirdly, consider with me the conduct endorsed. The conduct endorsed. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, latter part of verse 1, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here is this wife. She's seeking to submit to a disobedient husband, and she is to be known by her respectful and pure conduct. This wife is not trying to manipulate her husband. She's not trying to nag him into heart change, and she's not giving up on her husband and going after other men. She continues to be faithful to her husband. She honors her husband. She seeks to submit to her husband where she can. She doesn't curse. She doesn't revile. She doesn't belittle him. Rather, she respects him, and she seeks to honor him. Her conduct is altogether respectful and pure. No one can gainsay her behavior. And Peter envisions this conduct, this pure and respectful conduct, as having a softening effect on the husband. As for the husband himself, this unbelieving husband, disobedient to the word, he has no cause to speak evil of her. He knows, certainly he knows that she's been a faithful Christian. He knows that she disagrees with him. He knows that she wants him to change. But he also sees that she's not responding to him with vitriol or criticism or derisive comments that undermine his leadership. Instead, 
She's endeavoring to support him and love him and honor him. And the unbelieving, disobedient husband sees this. He sees she's endeavoring to honor him and to uphold his leadership, even though at points she needs to deviate from it in obedience to a higher calling to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And this good conduct, Peter says, he hopes that it'll have the effect of melting the man and winning the man. That is the kind of conduct that's endorsed, conduct that is altogether winsome and attractive, conduct that is respectful and pure, conduct that invites God's approval and gives honor to him and lends credence to the truth of the word. Now, before leaving this point, it's important that I say this. This is not a promise, sisters. This is not a promise that he will be changed. It's not a formula. Just do this, sisters, and the promise is he will be changed. He will bring his life into conformity and to obedience with the word. Rather, it is a hope that he might be changed. It's a hope that he might be changed. But more important, it represents a pathway forward for you. It represents a way forward for you in the will of God in a difficult marriage, a path you can follow in faith, knowing that you're honoring God. It is the path of trusting God with your husband, a path you can follow with hope that God might be pleased to use your respectful and pure conduct to win your husband, but it's not a promise he will change. Now, I'll just say, I've heard several women say something like this, even in my short time in the ministry, something like, Well, Alex, I've done that for five years. I've done that for for 10 years. I've done that for 30 years. And you know what? He's not changing. I've had enough. It's either he changes or I'm out. I actually had a woman say that once to me, that, that, that I've been trying Alex for two years, and he hasn't changed. Listen, the, the call here from God, sisters, is not to give this a trial run. It's to do this in service to Christ as long as he calls you to it. And you may die without seeing the conversion of your husband. You may die without seeing those areas where you wish for him to change, change. But you can die knowing that you fought the good fight and you finished the race of loving your husband well. That's the calling, sisters. And there's this hope. You can pursue this in hope that God might be pleased to change your husband, to win your husband. But if he doesn't, you have a pathway forward, and you can know that I have the approval of God, the pleasure of God, the smile of God by seeking to honor my husband in a difficult marriage, a husband who is disobedient to me. And you can pray. You could go to God with this text and appeal to him, God, would you please, would you please bring this passage to fruition in my husband's life? Would you please win him, not to your side in an argument, sisters, but that God would be pleased to win him to Christ and to obedience to his word. Sisters, I know it's hard. It's a difficult command. Imagine how difficult it would have been for these women in that day and age. But I have watched women very dear to me endure under terrible husbands. And God has blessed them and he's used them and he's shown himself to be faithful to them. The submission required, the purpose given, the conduct endorsed. Now, sisters, consider with me the beauty commended. The beauty commended. This will be our fourth and final point. Please look at verse 3. 
1 Peter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, a natural question, if you're just reading 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, a natural question that at least comes to my mind is why does Peter all of a sudden, in verse 3, begin talking about the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the outward appearance? Does it seem obvious to you why he might bring that up at this juncture? He's talked to the wife about seeking to honor the husband with her pure and respectable conduct, seeking to win him, and then he starts talking about hair and makeup and clothing. Why do you think Peter does that? It's, it's actually not altogether obvious to me why he would then move to this issue of feminine modesty and beauty, but here's what I think he's doing, what I think he's doing. In this passage, Peter wants to emphasize conduct and how a Christian woman can adopt a godly and winsome disposition and posture toward her husband. In verse 3, this is what I think is happening, is sort of shutting down an alternate lane she might go down. So, so she's not to try to superficially win him through sex appeal or through manipulating him with the way she dresses or the way she adorns her outward appearance. At least I think that's the idea. Peter is urging the women not to give themselves over to an inordinate preoccupation with their appearance in their quest to influence their husbands. Don't think, I think Peter is saying, that your physical appeal is going to have a spiritual effect on the guy. I think that's in essence the idea here. But further, I think Peter is also creating a contrast between prioritizing that kind of a thing, that sort of superficial winsomeness and attractiveness, and the kind of far more deep, real, attractive, and effective kind of beauty and attractiveness. And more than that, that thing which is said to be more precious in God's eyes. And more on that in a moment. So Peter says in verse 3, don't let your adorning, your beauty, essentially be defined by your hairstyle or the jewelry you wear or your clothing. Now, don't think that Peter is saying you shouldn't value external beauty at all. That's not what he's saying. And don't think he's saying you can't braid your hair or wear jewelry, that that's somehow displeasing to God or something like that. If braiding hair and wearing jewelry is disallowed by this passage, so is wearing clothes, because that's what he brings up next. So don't think Peter is saying Christian women should dress dowdy or drab or frumpy. That's not what Peter is saying. He's not saying that to care about fashion and appearing presentable or even attractive in an appropriate way is somehow wrong. That's not his point. But he is saying, I think this is the salient point, don't find your identity, your true beauty in those things. Don't give inordinate attention to those things. Don't think like the world that will tell you that the outward appearance is ultimately what matters. And I want to say just two things about this to my sisters here, a word of warning and a word of encouragement. First of all, a word of warning. Sisters, young and old, Christian and not, everything in popular advertising and in Hollywood 
And in the dating scene and in popular culture and in tabloid magazines at the checkout aisle at Lowe's Foods tells you that you are defined by your external attractiveness or sex appeal. This message is being preached to you every day, online, in movies and shows, on Netflix, in books, in popular culture. External appearance defines you and what is ultimate and most important. That is a fantastic lie, and it is distracting and destroying women. And because of this, there is an epidemic of otherwise lovely teenage girls killing themselves because they don't think they're pretty enough. It's a toxic culture that props up the most unrealistic standards of external beauty and then sells women the lie that this is what they should be aiming for. And it is a toxic culture whose wickedness is aided and abetted by mongrel, brutish, barbaric men who will also seek to uphold that standard of beauty and require this of women that they would otherwise date or be intimate with. Sisters, such dogs are not worth your time, and they can never make you happy. Men of real valor and integrity will treasure true beauty, and you must know that. It's not wrong to want to look pretty. It's not wrong at all. But sisters, you're not defined by perfect skin or your haircut or whether or not your figure is perfectly proportioned for maximum sex appeal. When the culture tells you that, they're lying to you. And there is such liberation, such freedom, such joy to be found in God's way of seeing the world. He measures beauty in a way altogether different and altogether more wonderful. Remember what the Lord said about David, the youngest and maybe the most physically unimpressive of the brothers in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I just want to give one small application at this point. Mothers and fathers, give thought to this in how you talk to your daughters and your sons about physical beauty. Um, we have a little girl, we celebrated her birthday yesterday, Jenna had a nice outfit on for her and did her hair all up, and I told her she's a pretty girl, and I want to encourage her to dress feminine and be a pretty girl, and that's great, but I also want to talk to her about this kind of beauty, and as your kids especially get older in the teenage relationship, or teenage years, and they start getting involved in relationships or dating and things like that, be on guard about the way you speak about physical appearance what it says to your daughters and what it says to your sons. That's the word of warning. Be careful what the culture will say to you on this. Now a word of encouragement. I asked my wife if I could say this, if this was awkward or not. She said she thought this was fine, so I'm going to say it. Don't put that on her. If I, I chose to say it. I'm thankful that in this church I have observed a delightful standard of both external feminine beauty and modesty. I believe our church is filled with women who in appropriate ways endeavor to dress and to appear feminine and who nonetheless are not given over to an ostentatious kind of begging for physical attention. To be clear, I'm not looking around trying to take stock of this kind of thing every week, but I have observed a pleasant standard of feminine beauty 
and God-honoring modesty. And as one of your pastors, sisters, I just want to commend you and encourage you with the delightful and godly standard of feminine beauty and modesty that I think prevails in this place. So if beauty is not ultimately bound up in the braiding of hair and the wearing of jewelry and the clothes you wear, how can you be truly beautiful in the way that God measures beauty? What is his standard? What is precious in his eyes? Verse 4 again, let your adorning, sisters, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Let's go phrase by phrase to understand what this kind of beauty is. First of all, it's called the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. In other words, physical traits are not what define this kind of beauty, but inner virtue. And I love that he says it's the hidden person. It's a a, a word that connotes neither gender. It's anthropos, that's like human. It's the inner person. Sister, you are not a body, you are a person. It is the hidden person of the heart that God is looking at. All right, secondly, Peter then says, this beauty is imperishable. It's the imperishable beauty that he's talking about. A lot of women in our day and age are looking for imperishable beauty. And boy, do they want it bad. There's a whole multi-billion dollar industry for it. Jennifer Aniston, Eva Longoria, Jennifer Lopez, they are trying desperately to deny the reality that their outward beauty is fading and perishing, and they're trying to lie to themselves and tell themselves that they can somehow hang on to it. If they use the right products, or if they do the right workout regimen, or consume the right diet, they can hang on to that outward beauty, but soon enough, we know it will perish. But this beauty, sisters, that is precious in God's eyes, it is said to be imperishable. It doesn't perish. It doesn't waste away. It doesn't age. It doesn't develop wrinkles where you don't want them or stretch marks. It doesn't go gray. It is evergreen. This beauty is not in need of Botox or hair dye or extra makeup. This beauty is perfect and imperishable. It never wilts. It never wanes. And it can be yours, sisters, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. A dear woman in our church this week directed me to this quote from Carolyn Mahaney's fine little book called Feminine Appeal. I would commend it to all of you. Carolyn Mahaney writes this, I must acknowledge the reality that physical beauty is passing away. After 10, 20, or 50 years of marriage, we will not look as lovely as we did on our wedding day. However, we are given some wonderful news in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5. It declares that if we cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit, we will actually make ourselves beautiful. Although it doesn't explain how this happens, and it certainly is not referring to physical beauty, it does assert that we will become more attractive as we grow in godly character. Now, I love this example Carolyn uses here. She refers to Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you know who that is. Hopefully you do. If not, you need to look her up. She's a remarkable woman. Carolyn says this about Elizabeth Elliot. She says, Elizabeth Elliot is a woman who displays this extraordinary beauty. I had the privilege of meeting this author and speaker several years ago. Although she was in her 70s at the time, her regal appearance fascinated me. She had the gray hair and wrinkles that accompany old age, and yet she was remarkably beautiful. 
This is because Elizabeth Elliot has cultivated the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this same godly beauty will make us attractive to our husbands even as our physical beauty fades through the years. That's Carolyn Mahaney, feminine appeal. That's imperishable beauty, sisters. And this is how you age well in Christ. And sisters, I just encourage you as you age, don't desperately cling to youthful external beauty. Go for imperishable beauty, and you can have it through Jesus. Reading on in the verse, it is said to be the imperishable beauty of what? A gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit. What does that mean? So many women ask this question. What does it mean to have a gentle and quiet spirit? Don't think that this means dainty and genteel. Don't import into this language Victorian notions of doilies and tea parties. These women who possess a gentle and quiet spirit are also described in verse 6 as fearless women who do not cower away from things that are frightening. They're courageous and they're strong and they're not fearing anything. But furthermore, the two words that are used, we need to appreciate this, they're not distinctly feminine qualities. We should not think... Well, women are gentle and quiet, and men are rough and loud. That's not the idea at all. The virtues that Peter is commending here are also enjoined upon men in other passages in the Bible. So let's look at those two words more closely. Sisters, you're to have a gentle spirit. The word, the Greek word is pros. The word means meek. You're to have a meek, a gentle spirit. It's only used three other times in the Bible all in the book of Matthew. It's used first of all in Matthew 5, verse 5, in the Beatitudes, where Jesus says to all Christians, and actually just men who were sitting there, his disciples sitting before him, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's enjoined on all Christians. Moreover, the two other times it's used, it's used to describe Jesus. Matthew 11, verses 28 and following, Jesus says, I am gentle, I am meek and lowly in heart. The other time is used in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem in meekness, riding on a donkey's colt. So sisters, who will you look to as a model in how to be pros, meek, and gentle? You will look at the man, Christ Jesus. Sisters, he will teach you how to be meek. He's the one who models this for us. This kind of meekness is a function of strength not weakness. Meekness involves self-mastery. It involves a kind of love and humility that permeate and regulate the soul and permeate and regulate one's conduct. I know how Jesus modeled this. He was the one who was meek in the greatest sense, the greatest display of meekness. He calls all of his disciples to be meek, and in this passage in particular, women, to adorn themselves with a meek and gentle spirit. The second word is quiet. You used to have a gentle and quiet spirit, a meek and quiet spirit. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used in 1 Peter 2, 2, in reference to the kind of lives that all of God's people are to live. There, Paul says to Timothy that we're to aspire to a quiet and peaceable life. And here, Peter emphasizes this as a quality that should adorn the heart of the Christian woman. Now, this word quiet has nothing to do with volume or the quantity of words you use. 
The Bible, sisters, actually requires that you use a lot of words. We're to exhort one another daily as long as it's called today. We're to admonish one another. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to seek to stir one another up to love and good work. Sisters in the church should be using lots of words to a godly purpose. The Bible also requires women to be loud at certain points. We're all to make a joyful noise to the Lord and shout to our God. We're all required to warmly and with zeal say the corporate amen. Again, when you hear quiet spirit, don't think dainty and delicate or like obsequiously groveling or deferential. I got a quiet spirit. I don't really have any thoughts or opinions. I don't really give them. I don't really get involved in discussions about big things like theology or something like that. That's not at all what this word means. So what do I mean if I say that someone is warm-hearted? What do I mean when I say that? So-and-so is warm-hearted. I don't mean that the temperature of their heart is warmer than most other people's hearts. I mean that they're kind, right? Similarly, if I say someone has a quiet spirit, I don't mean they're inaudible. There's no volume or words being said. But what does this word mean? What does it connote? This word means someone has a quiet spirit. To be quiet is to be calm, tranquil, composed, patient, as opposed to restless, anxious, loud, insubordinate, obnoxious. David, King David, in Psalm 131, the great warrior king prayed that God would help him to have a quiet soul. He says, I've stilled and quieted my soul. What's he talking about? He's talking about there's calm and composure in the heart. There's a, a tranquil sort of trust in God. David and the sisters in this passage are not moved and harassed by all the events and things going on around them. They're meek and quiet and peaceful as they seek to serve God and live for His approval. A gentle and quiet soul that trusts in God and hopes in Him through adversity. This is true beauty according to Peter. The soul that clings to Christ and finds worth in Him. This is true beauty. The hidden person of the heart that humbly in meekness and quietness looks to God for approval. That is said to be true beauty, sisters. And then finally we read that this is precious in the sight of God. This is the beauty that God commends, that meets with His approval. This woman in this passage lives for God's approval, not her husband's and not the world. Of course, she would love to have the approval of her husband, but if she doesn't, she is living, she has her eye on, the prize for her is the approval of God. And adopting those sorts of postures and behaviors and attitudes that honor Him and are precious in His sight. And as we read on, we learn that this makes her free and fearless. This kind of attitude, living for God, hoping in God, trusting in God, living for His approval, it has the effect, verse 6 tells us, of making her fearless. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. These women were called to hope in God as the holy women of old did. They adorned themselves with this kind of imperishable beauty, including Sarah, who, by the way, is one of the few women in the Bible singled out for her external beauty. And yet this passage says she adorned herself with this 
this God-honoring beauty that is more precious in the sight of God. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go to the episode that's talked about here where she refers to Abraham as Lord. I think the basic idea is that even in her heart, when no one was looking, in a spontaneous moment, she still honored Abraham in her heart. But I can't say more about that now. But then Peter says, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. These women who are possessed of a gentle and quiet spirit, they're fearless women. They don't fear anything that is frightening. There's lots in the world that is frightening. But these women who adorn themselves with this kind of beauty, who hope in God, who live for His approval, they don't fear anything that is frightening. What unlocks and awakens this kind of fearlessness? These women in Asia Minor certainly had things to fear. But Peter says, sisters, you can be like Sarah, and the holy women of old doing good and not fearing anything that is frightening. If you place your hope and trust in God where it can't be taken away from you. These women hoped in the Lord. They lived for His approval. Their non-Christian husbands couldn't crush them. The surrounding hostile culture couldn't break them down. Their hope was safely out of the reach of all that would be frightening because their hope and their trust was in God, and therefore they became invincible and indestructible women. They became fearless. Sisters, listen to me. Jennifer Aniston is not fearless. She's scared to death because everything that she prizes will soon be taken away from her. But the women who hope in God, who possess this kind of beauty, who have this kind of hope, they have something that can't be taken away from them, and therefore they are fearless. They are indestructible. Sisters, you can be fearless. This is the pathway to fearlessness. Women who have the approval of God and who hope and trust in Him, they cannot be moved. You have more dignity and nobility in you, sisters, than the secular feminist could possibly fathom. You have more true power than they could ever understand. And you have a brighter hope than they could ever imagine or comprehend. Now, in closing, I just want to share one quote with you from a holy woman of old named Hannah Moore. Talk about a fearless woman. I've shared this quote probably four or five times already, but it just so well fits with what I want to say to you in closing, so I'll share it again. She says this. The woman who derives her principles from the Bible and her amusements from intellectual sources from the beauties of nature and from active employment and exercise, will not pant for beholders. She is no clamorous beggar for the extorted alms of admiration. She lives on her own stock. She possesses the truest independence. She does not wait for the opinion of the world to know if she is right, nor for the applause of the world to know if she is happy. Let's pray together. Our Father, whatsoever things are good, and true, noble, just, and right, and excellent, and beautiful, help us to dwell on these things. We pray that the vision of godly submission, 
the vision of hoping in God, the vision of true beauty that is held forth in this passage. May you enable each woman called of your grace to pursue it with vigor and with zeal, pursuing more than all else the approval of God, seeking to lay hold, to hold fast to that which is precious in His sight. May we live for His approval and His smile, not for the approval and the smile of man. Help us to love the truth. Help us to know that it is the truth that sets us free. Thank you, Father, for the way you are blessing and helping the women of this church. We pray that you would multiply your gifts and blessings and graces toward them. For the husbands of this church, help us to treasure this picture of beauty that is held forth in this passage. Help us to be lovers and supporters of our wives as they seek to serve you in their callings. Help us as husbands to be faithful in the stewardship you've given to us. In all these things, Father, we pray that through our good and godly conduct, we would commend the gospel that we believe and the God whom we worship. Bless us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.